Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hey guys, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. This is episode number 86. I'm going to do a solo potty for you today. I know, I know I've done a few of those in a row, but... Uh, we're going to keep cracking with the solos for a little while and then bang out a good few guest episodes all together then after that. Um, and I know I didn't have a podcast last week and we're kind of playing around with like maybe going every two weeks for the next little while. Um, so I'm not exactly sure about that. I know some of you might be a little bit uh, upset by that because you like listening to the podcast and I know podcasts that I like listening to, like I check for them. I want, if, if they upload every week, they upload every week. And I'm, if, if I haven't seen the upload, I'm like, shit, I wanted to, it was part of my weekly routine. So sorry if that is the case for you. Uh, but at the moment we're just, yeah, we're just playing around with that. And I will confirm more as I, as we go along. Uh, for today's episode, I'm going to answer a few questions for you guys. So one is going to be, let me just broadly see what they are. One is, how do you stop your quad taking over so much during a slouch? Because I know I spoke about slouching recently and then I got that question. Um, one comes with, can you describe biomechanically what makes a good clean hip hinge? And I'll read that question in a bit more detail when it comes to it. And then one is basically around why is it so hard to get clients or people in this industry to change their mind and maybe see a new perspective. So we will chat about those three things and hopefully it will be a nice, uh, valuable episode for everyone. Um, any updates in terms of the DGR world for you guys? Yeah, we, we uh, released a DGR Espanol uh, Instagram page. So if you are a Spanish speaker, uh, obviously, hmm, maybe it's not even worthwhile mentioning it on the podcast because if you're listening to the podcast and your English is good enough to obviously consume Instagram posts as well, I presume. But if you are a Spanish speaker, check out that page. I think it is literally just DGR Espanol. And we've gotten Lower Body Basics translated also into Spanish. So don't quote me on this, but I think I googled a while back that there's more Spanish speakers in the world than English speakers, which I did not know. And I have seen, obviously, Mr. Beast, let's say, he has started to get all his YouTube videos translated into several different languages. And he was thinking, like he's getting millions of views just on his English channel. So like, do does the answer become, do I make more content from my English channel or do I, which means like maybe I'm just targeting the people that already watch our content and maybe a few more, or do I open up this whole world where I get it translated? Now, obviously our industry are, is a lot smaller and also, yeah, yeah, I, I also I'm not Mr. Beast, although I do look like him quite a bit, I've been told several times, and I also agree with that that I do. Um I think I'm a slightly more handsome version and he might be a slightly more slightly more rich version and um charismatic version and creative version and lots of other versions. But I think I get him on the hands handsome side, handsomeity side. Um 
so yeah, we did a DGR Espanol page and we're getting some of our posts translated and going to pop them up there. So give it a share for us if you are Spanish speaking, that would be helpful. And Lower Body Basics fully translated into Spanish. It's kind of a swing. We're taking a swing. We're just, there's a pitch in the air and we're just taking a swing at it. Whether we hit the pitch or not, whether uh, whether we get struck out, it's very likely like it doesn't, it won't work that well. But it also could work well, potentially. So I'm a tryer. I like to have a swing at things. So let's let's have a swing at it. And if it doesn't, yes, it will have cost us a bit of money and a bit of time, but it won't be the end of the world. And at least I tried. So that's one DJR Espanol workshop wise. New York City is sold out. Can't wait for that one. Uh, Verona in Italy is sold out in November. Can't wait for that one. Um, that will be our first, oh no, sorry, no, I'm wrong. I was going to say that would be our first workshop in a European city that isn't primarily, English isn't our first language, but actually, no, that's completely wrong. We've been in Munich and we've been in Sweden as well. Um, and then uh, Washington DC, I think there's three tickets left for October. So that's coming up pretty soon. So make sure you check out Washington. And that's our last three workshops for 2023. And when DC sells out, which it will very soon, that will be every single workshop in 2023 has sold out. Actually, every single workshop ever has sold out, which is will be pretty cool. Uh, so, okay, let's get to some of the questions. Easy one to begin with. Super easy, I think. How do you stop your quad taking over so much during the Soleus Slouch? So you'll see in the name, the Soleus Slouch. And actually, this happens in a kickstand hinge, can happen in kickstand hinge a lot, a, a relative, relatively a lot uh, as well, where people just, their quads are going to blow up. And there's a few things that you can say. The lazy answer is you just have weak quads. And actually, that might be a correct answer because you're, for both of these exercises, you're getting into a positive shin angle. So your knee is kind of forward on, over your toes a little bit and there is definitely going to be load on the anterior knee and uh, distal quadriceps in particular and people that don't get into that position all that much will feel their quads loading but if you take a kickstand hinge you should start to feel as you hinge that a lot of the load is transferred, even though the knee doesn't straighten back, a lot of the load is transferred into the hip muscles and the posterior chain. Some people don't feel that. They feel more and more quad as the exercise goes on. And in the soleus slouch, even though you're forward and you, if you just stayed upright, if you just got into the position where like in these two exercises where you're just bending your knee and, and on top of your foot, you might just you probably wouldn't feel your glute working much or your hamstring working much if you just stayed there and didn't actually go down towards the floor. You would feel your, probably your quad. But as you do your hinge movement, you should be picking up tension in your glute and your hamstrings, maybe your calf. And as you do your slayer slouch exercise, you should be picking up uh, more tension, maybe in those muscles as well, as well just much less in the glute and probably much less in the hamstring and much more in the soleus. So why do people not only feel their quads when they get into the position, which is completely normal, but also feel more and more and more quad as they go through the exercise? There's one, 
No, there's two answers. One is they're just in that position for longer, so they feel it more. But that's not really the that's not really the crux of the issue. It's not an issue. It might be favorable, but that's not really why they're feeling it. They're feeling it, and it's a very simple answer. Because they're squatting more and more through the exercise. So now bear in mind the Soleus slouch is not the same exercise as um the slouching split squat. There are two exercises, two different exercises with very different intentions. Although they might look similar if you don't know how to do, if you don't know that they're two different exercises, okay? Or you do the one one kind of like the other one. So um the Soleus slouch, that's actually one from Dave O'Sullivan. And in that exercise, I'll just I'll just speak about it the way I like to do it at least, but I like to get people on top of their foot and you kind of squat down a little bit into it. So you bend your knee a bit, you sit into it just a small bit. And then from there, all you're going to touch the ground with your hands, but all of the touching of the ground comes from you rounding your spine, you're dropping your chin to your chest, you're rounding your spine down and you're reaching your hands down to touch the floor kind of rolling over your knee let's say and then you're going to push down through your foot to come back up those of you who have done our uh foot and achilles foot ankle achilles program will have seen this exercise those of you who have done lower body basics uh yeah i'm pretty sure will have seen the slouching split squat in the slouching split squat your quads will feel like they're going to explode in the Soleus slouch, you should feel a lot of Soleus. That's why Dave named it a Soleus slouch. I might, I'm guessing. So you should feel a lot of Soleus in that exercise. So uh, if you don't feel a lot of Soleus, you, one, you don't have your knee bent enough. Two, you're not forward enough on your foot. And three, you're feeling a lot more quad because you're squatting through the motion. So once you pick the amount of knee flexion that you want to be in and the amount of hip flexion that you want to be in to begin the exercise, then you don't flex your knee more or less through the exercise. You don't, yeah, well, you will go into hip flexion more by virtue of rolling down, but you're not you're not flexing your hip and your knee. I think that's the key point. You're not sitting down because if you sit down, you will get hip flexion and knee flexion. In the Soleil slouch, you're not sitting down anymore. If you sit it down, it starts to become more of a squatty exercise and you will feel your quad blow up, which is exactly what you want if you want to load the quad more. But if you want to load the Soleil more, then keeping your hip higher and rolling down like a Jefferson curl, but on a bent knee will put a lot of tension through the posterior chain, in particular, more distally. So the Soleus, it's going to be in a lengthened position. And if you take away the glutes, you take away the spine, you take away a good bit of hamstring length, let's say you're really only left with like your foot and your Soleus to really drive through the floor to push you back up again. So if you're feeling your quad, the answer is most likely that you are squatting the exercise. If you're feeling your quad just when you're upright and you're getting into the position to begin with, then the answer is you probably don't usually get into a tall position where your knee is bent and your weight is forward and your knee is over your toes a little bit. That means that, uh, not that that means, but what we can start to use is a little bit of knowledge here around how I can 
increase load through the anterior knee and the quads or put load elsewhere. So if you think about if you are doing if you are doing let me see. So if okay, yeah, okay, like if, if you are doing knee rehab with someone and you're trying to encourage them to bend their knee and to load the anterior knee and the distal quadriceps, then if they look hingy in their exercises, like a squat, like a lunge, like a jumping type of movement, or a bounding type of movement, or even a stepping type of movement, if they look hingy, then you can pretty much presume that they are avoiding pushing their knee forward and what they're doing is leaning their trunk forward instead and they're trying to load their hip more than they're trying to load the the knee and the quadriceps. This is incredibly common in knee rehab. Why would a nervous system want to push that knee forward and let that knee take the load? Because it's just, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel comfortable to do so, but you need to do that in a graded exposure to get it back. So if you are someone or have someone that just won't push their knee forward very much, then you can get them to reach their arms up into the sky, let's say, because it's very difficult, like or push a plate overhead. You'll see a lot of people using plates up overhead, sticks overhead, bands overhead, and it's very difficult to, it's, it's very unlikely that you're going to hinge forward when you have a plate pressed up overhead. You might lean backwards a little bit. And actually, in this instance, it might be beneficial because if your body is more, your torso is more upright, then your knee is probably going to have to go forward more. So in like, for example, so what, where this kind of came from, which I didn't plan on talking about this, but in the Salea slouch, let's say you're forward, you're on top of your foot and you're standing up tall, there you might feel your distal quads and your anterior knee, hopefully not in a painful way. But as you slouch down, you should feel like you're picking up tension, particularly in the Salea's, in the kickstand hinge, particularly in the hip and some of the hamstring potentially in the glute muscles. So it's because your torso is going forward and your hip is going back and those muscles are kind of holding you up, let's say. So if you don't hinge forward, then those muscles aren't holding you up and the quad is taking a lot of load because that's what's out in front. So if you want to bias the hips, you could reach the hands forward more. If you want to make someone or force someone to push their knee forward more, you can reach your arms up into the sky more. Uh, really nice way of, of just getting something to happen just understanding center of mass center of mass is a massive concept to understand when you're coaching movement because everything can't come forward together everything can't come backwards together people have to keep their balance you need to t- understand center center of pressure center of gravity center of mass if something goes forward something else has to come back if something else if something comes back something else has to go forward instead everything can't go forward and everything can't go back well it can but you're going to fall over you're going to fall over and now you're relying on which is another nice thing that you might want to do get someone to fall over and now you're relying on a cross extensor reflex a stumble reflex to catch them falling over is a great option as well if you want to train the swing leg having to come through and actually strike the ground that can be a great option but 
so again, understanding standing center of mass is really important. So how do you stop your quad taking over so much and slay a slouch? Don't squat it. Um, same in the kickstand hinge. Doesn't mean you can start in a squatty position, but don't continue to squat too much or at all uh, through the exercise. So I think that answers that one. Um, okay, uh, may as well stick with this then. Because we're kind of talking about that. So can you describe biomechanically what makes a good clean hip hinge? I can see it. I can do it now after using DGR Interactive, the world's best biomechanics education platform. This that they, they didn't say that as part of the as part of the question, but they inferred inferred that it was slash is the world's best biomechanics education platform. So question continues. I'll start again. Can you describe biomechanically what makes a good clean hip hinge? I can see it. I can do it now after using DGRI and I can coach it. But I was asked to describe what is happening at the hip and spine as the pelvis anterior tilts throughout the hinge. Okay, this is actually surprisingly a really tricky answer. <laughs> and we're just going to presume that like, because there's all, all kinds of hip hinges, but we're going to presume, obviously they're talking about like a kickstand hinge or the double leg hinges that we like to coach in DJ Interactive um, or the various types of hinges that we like to coach. But we're talking about a pure hip hinge, not like a deadlift, not like an RDL, a pure hip hinge that we like to discuss. So biomechanically, what is happening? very tricky one to answer because you can get wrapped up in a little model a little bit bit of a you can wrap yourself up and I could if if I asked you listening or someone else listening like what's happening at the hip and the pelvis here you could say a lot of words and I would say "Mm, is it like is it this or is it that and you could end up quite confused and scratching your head a little bit. So it is a tricky one. And the key point here, the person is saying, I was asked to describe what is happening at the hip and spine as the pelvis anterior tilts. And I think that's where we're going wrong to begin with as the pelvis anterior tilts. So is the pelvis anterior tilting in the hinge that we want? Let's, let's, uh, let's see. So if you're all sitting down, can you all join me? I never know if this works when I say, can you do this as I do it? But I think it will do it. Even if you're driving or whatever, I think you can go to your pelvis and posterior tilt it and anterior tilt it. And what I want you to feel is as you anterior tilt, can you feel how your spine moves as well? So as you anterior tilt, you extend your lumbar spine and probably your thoracic spine if you know how to anterior tilt. And your ribs come up at the front. And as you posterior tilt, you flex your lumbar spine and flex your thoracic spine as your ribs come down at the front. So what you'll see in the hip hinges that we teach is that there is zero movement at the spine. Whatever position the spine starts in, in terms of the curvature of the spine, the spine will move in space, but not relative to other parts of the spine. The spine moves as a chunk in a good hip hinge. It doesn't mean we cue chest up, chest down. It doesn't mean we cue any of that stuff. We're just saying stand up tall and now hinge your hip. And the only reason your spine is moving in space is because your hip is moving in space. 
if you if you anterior your tilt, can you feel when you're sitting down and you anterior your tilt, your spine is moving and your ribs are moving. So your anterior tilt, you do a big anterior, big anterior tilt and your ribs come up in space. So your ribs are lifting at the front as your pelvis moves forward at the front. So your, let's say if we take a muscle there, your rectus abdominis is actually lengthening as you do that. I would say that that's a great option to anterior tilt in a hinge type of movement if you want that to happen, if you're trying to load certain muscles. But in the one that we're discussing, and this person is 100% discussing, that doesn't happen. We don't move the spine throughout. We just move the hip. So we can disqualify describing it as an anterior tilt because an anterior tilt moves the spine. We can also disqualify a posterior tilt now as well because the the posterior tilt also moves the spine so what is happening if you the 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 answer leaves you with only the question i think leaves you and i actually haven't answered this anywhere before i don't think but I think the question leaves you with only one answer, which is what is happening is hip flexion in the closed chain. So if you flex your hip in the open chain, let's say you lie on a physio table, someone lies you down on a physio table and they start to bring your knee up towards your chest. You're going into hip flexion, but they're a good coach or practitioner and they understand relative motion and they understand that as I bring your knee up to your chest I'm going to stop before you start to tuck your pelvis I'm going to stop before you start to flex your lumbar spine I'm going to stop before you your other knee starts to come along from the right I really only be want to be strict and check pure hip flexion of that side that I'm that I'm obviously checking hip flexion on so in this instance if the pelvis doesn't move and I'm purely moving the femur on the acetabulum, then that is pure hip flexion. Zero other things in your whole body have moved. Yes, your tibia is moving in space. Yes, your foot is moving in space. But really, we're moving your femur, the head of the femur on the acetabulum. And we stop before the acetabulum starts to move with the femur, where they both move together. So that would be open chain hip flexion where I have moved your femur into and moved your hip into flexion without moving the spine. So this is what is happening in a hip hinge, except it is in the closed chain. So in the closed chain, instead of moving the femur up, because now I've taken my, if you stand up, you can go into open chain hip flexion standing up as well, where you start to bring your knee up towards your chest, but you obviously stop before you move your lumbar spine or pelvis at all. Because if you move your pelvis, you've moved your spine and we're not doing the clean hip hinge. And uh, don't come at me with this like, oh, it's impossible to not move your spine a millimeter in a hinge. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about being pedantic here. I'm talking about trying to be biomechanically as accurate as we can in terms of what we're looking for in a good hip hinge that that we're discussing. I'm not talking about like, oh, pain science or research says it's impossible not to go into some flexion or extension at your spine. I'm not saying we're doing it in a perfect way. I'm saying what what we're looking for potentially here is to just move from your hip. 
okay so open chain hip flexion you can bring the knee up towards your chest standing upright and that is again the femur moving on the acetabulum the pelvis is fixed but now if we go into closed chain where the foot has to be on the floor then the only way to move into hip flexion is to move the acetabulum over the femur but if you do an anterior tilt Remember, I said you've moved your spine. So if you do a posterior tilt, remember you've moved your your spine as well. So the only way to do it is just to go into pure hip flexion without the pelvis anterior or posterior tilting. So to me, the biomechanically correct description for what's happening at the hip, because that was saying this person was asking, can you can you explain? Can you describe what is happening at the hip and spine as the pel- pelvis anterior tilts? What, what is happening at the spine if the, as the pelvis anterior tilts is the spine goes into extension, not what we want. So it's not the pelvis anterior tilting. It is actually just pure clean hip flexion and the spine orients in space. It moves forward in space, but it's not moving relative to the other parts of the spine aren't moving relative to each other. So I would say the only way to describe it is closed chain hip flexion in that, in that regard, what's happening at the hip. Um, in the sagittal plane, of course, there might be some IR, ER, or adduction or abduction, but it's closed chain hip flexion. That's what we are looking for. Whether that's achievable, like in terms of not moving your spine at all, relative motion at the spine, who knows? Research suggests that it's not achievable, but like... Hey guys, just a super quick break from the show. I just wanted to tell you that for our foot, ankle and Achilles program, we actually just added a bonus section to it. So there's already four phases worth of foot and lower leg training. It shows you the exact step-by-step system that I use with all my lower leg and foot clients. And then we had a couple of people asking a little bit around big toe stuff about improving flexion, extension and strength around the big toe and the forefoot in general. So I added in a bonus big toe awakening sequence there as well so for those of you who've already bought it the 3000 almost now you'll see that bonus at the start uh, sorry at the end of the whole program so there's the education the four phases uh the plyometric work and then you'll see the bonus at the bottom for those of you who haven't got it yet same for you so make sure you jump on it uh we'll put the link in the show notes and you won't regret it it's been our most popular by a by a mile program so far and i absolutely am very proud of it so check out the foot ankle and achilles program in the show notes that's not what i'm trying to say is it achievable for everyone to get way better at not moving their spine yes And it's not because I don't want people to move their spine. We do loads of exercises where they load their spine, they move their spine under load, flexion, extension, lateral flexion, rotation. You move all the stuff under load. But in this exercise, what I'm saying is if you want to get better at moving your hip, then try not to move your spine. The intention is to not move your spine and do every single one of my clients and every single person that does this work from DJ Interactive, 800 coaches and therapists, and then go on with their clients. Do they all get better at not moving their spine while they hip hinge? Yes, they do. Does it mean that they don't move their spine at all? No, but they get much better at not moving their spine, which means they move their hip more which means that they load their glutes more, which means that their glutes get massive, which also means that they map out this area of their body much more in terms of like when, they, when they're when teaching their body what their hip really is. 
and which means they open up so much mobility and so much strength and really nice movement patterns as well because we're teaching hip flexion and extension when we do that uh, in the closed chain so hopefully that's helpful again as i always say a podcast is i know i'm on youtube as well here talking but like this again this is what dgr interactive is for so you can see these concepts in place taking place and feel them and do them and understand them and look at me coaching different people and chris coaching himself and different people that's what it's for the podcast isn't the perfect medium for that but hopefully it's good enough i really hope it's good enough and i think that segment even though it's a little bit can be a bit difficult and a little bit finicky and confusing it is important to understand i think um okay last question sorry hang on kira just text me uh, Dave, I left a bag with avo and berries in it in the office kitchen. Please bring it home. Okay. Um, okay, so last one. Why is it so hard to get people to see a new perspective in this industry? For clients, they might think, I need manual therapy. For coaches and therapists, this system is the best my system is the best your system is the best this system that i learned is the best so why is it hard to get people to see a new perspective or change their mind in this industry um i'm not a behavioral psychologist so i'm probably not i'm not a lot of things but i'm definitely not that uh i do really like thinking about human behavior because like everything we do comes back to that um, it comes back to just trying to understand why we make decisions the way we do, why we think the way we think. So you can get deep enough with this question, I guess. But I think the, I think it's not this industry. I just think it's people, it's human beings. If you've ever heard of something called like a first mover advantage in a, in a town, you might be, uh, you might be a physio clinic on a main street and sorry there might be no physio clinic on a main street and you set up a physio clinic on a main street and you might get something called a first mover advantage which was like i'm first here i get a lot of clients there's a lot of loyalty to me um i get uh, i do a good job and people feel like he was here first or he or he or she were here first and I've, I'm with them and I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to go to this new clinic that just opened down the street. I'm going to stick with them. So like that's a, an example maybe of a first mover advantage. You could think about first mover advantages in social media. Actually, there's probably a lot, which is um, like Instagram is was potentially one of the first uh, i don't know i don't know the history of social media just an example like instagram could be have a first mover advantage in terms of like everyone could set up an app that is like instagram but it's it's there's struggles involved because because they were the first actually maybe they weren't the first but they were the first to nail it and they uh now there's networks of network effects that have taken place which which is yeah i might love to move to another social media but the problem is none of my friends are on there so network effects might be part of their first mover advantage or, or them doing a good job in the first place so how does it relate to like getting clients to see a new perspective i think with 
thoughts and ideas thoughts and ideas also have a first mover advantage and i've never really heard anyone speak about this so i am sure that some behavioral psychologists who are much smarter than me would be able to describe this much better or actually say no you're what you're saying is wrong so definitely take this with a pinch of salt but i think thoughts like ideas have a first mover advantage so i think think about religion think about politics where you grew up what religion you grew up in what um political party you grew up in you're very likely to stay with that for life you're not i would say you're not very likely to be a christian and then to decide one day "Mm, actually i'm going to be a muslim now not that it doesn't happen but or vice versa i'm a muslim and now i'm just going to be a christian no but if you were neither of those things and you decided okay maybe religion is for me maybe you could take the merits of both religions and put them against each other lay out the pros and cons and say actually i think i'm going to be a muslim or i think i'm going to be a christian but if you're already a Christian, because that's the idea that you are kind of handed, then you're much less likely to look at the pros and cons, but even especially the pros of something else. The same with politics. You feel so strongly, and I, I don't give a shit about politics, to be honest, and I know very little about it, but like you feel very strongly about X, Y, and Z in a certain way because maybe it was the first idea that you actually heard maybe it was because you grew up in a household that was very strongly uh associated or affiliated with this political party and you were kind of indoctrined in that way network effects took place so like this idea had a first mover advantage for you whether you were aware of that or not and maybe if it didn't and you weren't exposed to anything maybe you would see more of the pros of something else. So in this industry, like clients, I need manual therapy. Like they, I, that idea has a first mover advantage, which is they grew up with that idea that manual therapy was going to be the thing that they need. And I'm not saying they don't need that. Maybe they do need it. Maybe they feel like they need it. Maybe it is beneficial for them. But regardless, that idea has a first mover advantage in this industry. People have been doing that for thousands of years and in some way or another doing some kind of massage or whatever, like they have been doing something like that. So one, maybe there's a reason why, because maybe it makes people feel good. And two, it it has been spoken about for a long time as this is the thing. And this manual therapy is just an example of this, by the way. You could choose a, mil- a million things, but this is what that per- this person said. So first mover advantages in ideas are there. And that is why you want to be careful with your words. Because if you ever get someone that comes in and has, a, let's say, quote unquote, bad back, they can come into you for an assessment. And you can look at them moving and blah, 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 blah. And you can say, I think your back is looking pretty good. But they they will often say, well, actually, the physio or the doctor that I went to said my back is fucked. Or the chiropractor said your back is fucked. So 
they won't take your word for it, or not that they should take your word for it, but your words are being filtered through a system where actually I've already heard something else. So now I'm putting two opposing ideas against each other. What you're saying versus what this previous person had said. But when they went to the previous person, if that person was the first person to assess them, they don't have that issue because this person goes in and says, my back is really sore, blah, blah, blah. And that first person has a chance to use the first mover advantage, the first mover idea that I'm just trying to discuss or get across probably pretty poorly here they have that chance to use that to their advantage which could be like actually i think your back looks really good here and there might be a few things that we can do and maybe it's sore for these few reasons but i wouldn't worry about it too much i don't think you're gonna i don't think it's gonna explode i don't think you're going to be injured for a long time or i don't think you have bulging discs or all this stuff i think you look pretty good to me and we just need to tweak a few things and change a few little things and maybe make it a bit stronger now if they went in for a second opinion with someone else and you said yeah i think that person is right uh, about what they say blah, blah 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 like now you're confirming this original first mover thought versus if this person that they went to see said no i think you're fucked x y and z now they come into you and you're trying to say, no, I think you're pretty good. There's two conflicting thoughts and they already have that thought. So being the first point of contact is really important. That's why we need doctors and surgeons who have a shit ton of authority and who a lot of people go to first off, maybe not surgeons, but a lot of people go to doctors as their first port of call. And sometimes the doctor's language isn't particularly empowering and maybe um maybe not uh yeah empowering let's say maybe maybe not the best choice of words now you're dealing with a first mover advantage which is the doctor said i'm fucked and also dealing with someone who is in a high place of authority and so now you're really going to struggle to you ask like how do i get clients to see a new perspective it's it's tough and it's not just in this industry as i said religion politics and if you look online this industry, health and fitness, is very much like religion. It's really like religion. People go into different types of cults with different systems and they stay there. And they just will argue. And nutrition is the same. They will say, I am, I only eat meat. I only eat vegetables. I am vegan. I am keto. I am whatever. And they will argue to the, like, the debt for that thing. And it's because that idea is is resonated with them for some reason, whether it was a first mover or not, and or someone in, in a place of authority told them. And it's much harder to change your mind, I would say, and think logically about these things than to just make up your mind in the first place. Making up your mind about something is taught is is sorry, pretty easy. Changing your mind is pretty difficult. Um so yeah and that goes for all of us we all have our biases and we all have our things that we think and changing our mind can be very difficult so i would say it's not just in this industry how do you get them to change how do you get clients to see a new perspective actually maybe i didn't answer your question at all why is it so hard to get oh no you didn't ask how do you get them to really did you 
you said, why is it so hard to get clients to see a new perspective? That's why it's so hard because once you have your, once you have something in your mind, it's very difficult to change your mind. And that goes for every single one of us. The reason why this is not just thoughts, like this is movement as well. The way you started walking when you were a toddler and up into a child and up into a young adult, like you could see someone that was in your class in primary school and see them walking down the street and be like, yep, that's their walk (laughs) or that was definitely their run or that's their laugh or that's their uh, whatever, all these different things. That's how they, yeah, I can see that that's how they eat a yogurt. They always used to eat it that way because once your nervous system, your brain kind of settles on something, it's, it's usually comfortable there. It's efficient for it to just not challenge the status quo and keep going that way. So that goes for this industry as well. I think manual therapy is the thing that's going to help me. So I just think manual therapy is the thing that's going to help me. And maybe it will. I think movement is the thing that's going to help me. I stick with that. I might try different types of movement. I might try different types of manual therapy. But I really think it's going to be manual therapy, for example. So, yeah. And then you asked about, like, also also coaches and therapists, like, they think this system is the best it's the same thing it's a cult-like thing they get indoctrinated into a system and they think it is the the best and if you wanted to get someone to change religion which a lot of these systems are like religious actually not even like religions they're like cults like you would have to if you wanted to get someone to change religion who loved this religion who was like dedicated to it like these systems in the industry you would have to offer a substantial amount of proof that this religion isn't correct, or I don't know what the terminology is. Like you would have to offer so much proof, and it's the same with the uh, it's the same with systems. You would have to offer so much proof, and proof comes in many forms. It comes in maybe testimonials. I'm back. I'm not. I'm away from religion now. I'm back to the systems. It comes in the form of like testimonials. Like, look at all these people that I'm helping in this way without using that system. I'm not saying you say this to them, but they might start to make up their their own mind. So it comes in the form of like testimonials. It comes in the form of education. Here is why we do the things that we do and why we like it. It might be based on research. It might be based on anecdotal stuff. It might just be based on logic, which is, I think it makes sense to help people for a system that's like, no, always work on stability and squeezing and bracing. Like, I think it makes sense to move your joints around. And I could come up with some logical story that's like, would you like to be able to grasp things with your hand and pick up uh, a pen and be able to write and move all this Well, if you just braced your hand, then you can't do that. So would you like to be able to move your hand? Yes. So maybe we can extrapolate that it might be nice for you to be able to move your spine as well, because there's joints there also. So you can start to use logic and anecdotes and stories like that. So testimonials is one way. Um, Logic is another way, although logic isn't always the great, the best one, to be honest. Um, Proof in terms of allowing them to feel something is really important. I do that with my clients a lot. Like they feel like I, I've been told I have a hip impingement and I just guaranteed I have a hip impingement. We do some exercises. We test their hip into hip flexion. They feel a pinch. We do some exercises. 
and then they feel like they don't have a pinch anymore potentially that is proof in the form of feeling it's not it's not proof in the form of education like the research says x y and z no that's not going to be enough i don't think um actually not even going to be enough it's probably going to be falling on deaf ears in the beginning so i think proof in terms of like feeling being able to actually feel a change is really important so testimonials from other people being able to feel something yourself and like it's something that slaps you in the face that you can't deny uh logic in in terms of educating with good stories and good adding anecdotes can be really good authority can help so like someone becomes an authority in the space and they start to talk about uh for example you might listen to my podcast and think on i'm an authority and you might love a certain system in the industry i'm not saying i am an authority but you might view me as that or someone else as that so i'm discussing some kind of system within the industry and saying well actually here's some of the flaws that i see and your your the mass that you place on me or that authority might override the mass that you place on the system or yeah on that system let's say so or at least might be enough for you to start to think about it in your own way maybe he's right i'm not i didn't think about it in this way or this way or this way so i think how do you get people coaches and therapists to change their mind is you don't force it on anyone our clients let's say like it's it's all the same things you need to offer proof in the form of maybe testimonials their friends are saying things about it their colleagues are saying things about it uh good things in the form of education here's what the research says in form of like allowing them to feel their changes and offer proof in that way like they can't can't deny how much better you feel after we just did this this and this and that flies in the face of what that other system says in the form of building up authority so you want to be you want to be some kind of authority in the eyes of your clients and not in a way of tricking them or lying and pretending that you've done all these things but like i think being authoritative in your job is a good thing like you you feel that they feel that you have some valuable experience and are are a voice maybe in this industry or in your local town or something like that a little bit of authority can be very very valuable obviously it can go astray and you can use that to um in in a bad way but we will obviously use it in a good way and um yeah emotion is another one like using emotion to change their mind about things which is like some people will be worried will say will be so convinced that like they can never get out of pain or they're always hurt or this is guaranteed this is the right system or all these things and like you can use emotion to tackle that a little bit um and help them yeah emotion logic might always not be the the right one but emotion can be so yeah i think clients can change their mind so let me give you one concrete example before i leave so let's say like a client feels like their back is fucked they have bulging discs they can't round their back i'm never going to be out of pain and my i i i can't round my back i'm sure of that and you're saying like to me okay they won't change their mind i can't get them to uh, um, appreciate this new perspective that maybe rounding my back is okay so we will try and offer proof in several ways proof 
I don't mean full proof, but I mean like snippets of proof for them. So proof in the form of, yeah, I actually had a client very similar than that last month. And now they are back playing sport. Now they are back deadlifting, whatever the thing that's relevant to them is. Now they're back rounding their back again. They're, they're doing all these things. So, and you're not lying about that. You should have a body of evidence to call upon. So there's proof in that way that's like, it's, I'm not talking about this research study that showed a thousand people. I'm talking about one person that I know very well that I have a, like a relatively intimate relationship with. And that can be really beneficial. If, you, if you're going to go on holidays with someone, sorry, to a place, you care less about all the reviews on TripAdvisor and you care more about what your friend says about that place. Even if a thousand people on TripAdvisor said it was amazing, and your friend said, I went there and I had the shittest holiday of my life. I bet you you're not going there. So you will, you will put weight, you will put a value on your friend's opinion over all of these other people that you don't know. So I do that in clinic where I put, I tell people about someone that I know very, very well that, yeah. And, and they will value that much more than just like what a research paper says about a hundred people or 20 people. So that's one. We will use uh, proof in the form of someone else in a situation similar to you. We will also use a little bit of education. So also the research says X, Y, and Z. But I'll use that in very simple, clear language. So the research says X, Y, and Z. I will also explain to them maybe in a logical way. This isn't the order I will do this necessarily, but in a logical way. Like, look, honestly... It just doesn't make sense that for human beings that if we hurt, it, hurt our back, that that means that we'll never heal again. It just does not make sense. If you didn't have a surgeon a thousand years ago and you were out in the wild, like you're, you would kind of find a way to get on with it. And, and that might not be the best story, but like it could be a good story, for example. So you can you can go about it in that way. Um, and you can also prove it to them in terms of feeling it. So you can do exercises that help them feel better. And now that proof is like, holy shit, I actually thought that I was fucked and maybe I'm not. So there's many ways to go about it. And I will sprinkle a mixture of all of these in in my sessions. And it's not in a like, it is deliberate how I do it, but it's in a very natural way. It's in the conversation throughout the session. And they might not remember all of those little things, but it's just this constant positive reassuring that I'm going to be okay. And like they have several little bits of proof um, to pick from, which is David knew a client. David talked about a research study. I actually felt it a little bit myself that I felt a bit better when I had to pick up that pen after doing these couple of exercises. And also like, yeah, he, I think he's right. Like, it doesn't make sense that it wouldn't heal. Why wouldn't it heal? I've had other injuries over my life and they've healed. So why wouldn't this one heal? Um, so, yeah, I think that was all over the shop. So apologies. But uh, yeah, that's a it's a very interesting topic. So I'm sure other people will be able to answer it much better than me and including probably every single one of you listening. So apologies. Um, okay. I think that is the end of the episode. I hope it was worthwhile. I 
anything left to say yeah check out djr interactive actually we've had like a host of people saying how much they have loved it over the last month or so especially and um it is we've really upped their game i think we've started to get some top class video sorry there's hundreds of hours of top class videos up there but we just had a lot of messages for some reason over the last couple of weeks or last month so here's the last five video the videos that are all in our recent uploads so i have coaching pronation and opening the chest with someone who is quote unquote sway back posture i wouldn't use that those words to them in person coaching wall acceleration drills how not to do it a guest presentation for craig mallet a floor based it's a floor based relaxation sequence so just completely obliterate all this tension in your body a guest presentation from brandon accardi pairing plyometrics with weightlifting so uh, not just for a weightlifter, but if someone likes lifting weights or an athlete that you're working with likes lifting weights, how do you how do you pick the right plyos and coach them and, and program them? And then I just put up a video yesterday, lower back pain, client consultation. Here's what Kira wrote. Uh, follow along as David assesses a client presenting with lower back pain coupled with neural tension traveling down the leg. He will show you the key assessments and exercises they worked on together. And also I'll show you the exact plan that I wrote for that person. Uh, so yeah, every exercise set and rep. So you can follow on all those videos like that lower back pain client consultation. That's just 25 minutes long. They're all about 10 15 20 minutes long we have 800 coaches and therapists on dj interactive at the moment so um it is truly the world's best not just biomechanics education but like coaches education platform rehab people therapists movement education i also just last thing on dj interactive i also made a section which has biomechanics 101 so that has 13 because some people were coming onto the platform and kind of were unsure where to start because there's so much amazing content and uh so i actually put together like a biomechanics 101 course which has 13 key videos that you should watch and it has a couple of videos from each section so a couple on breathing couple on foot and ankle stuff couple on uh knee stuff couple on gait couple on plyometrics um all these different ones couple of practical classes on hip hinging and stuff so 13 key lessons that will help you understand movement and then you go into like the world of dj interactive from there which are always wide open and and a path kind of laid out so uh yeah i think that's the pod i'll chat to you guys next week